Welcome, everybody, to episode 15 of the uh, Art of Marketing podcast webinar series that we're doing with your friends at Applied Art. Today, we are joined with Peter and Calla from CMA, so we'll give them a second to introduce themselves, but we are talking all about reaching younger concert viewers and how they have been using some uh, technology to do some of that type of stuff during the pandemic. So uh, today, you're joined by uh, one of our partners, Mark Wilkie, our operations manager, Chris Heckel, our business development manager, Shannon Quinn, and myself, Ryan, and I'm in marketing. So like we mentioned, we have Peter and Calla. Thanks guys for being on the show. And we'll start it off with Peter. If you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Peter Stevenson. I'm the executive director of Civic Music Association. Um, we are a 95-year-old presenter of uh, chamber jazz and other music uh, genres in Des Moines, Iowa. Awesome. And Calla, tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, I'm Calla Whip. Um, I work with CMA. I'm a marketing consultant. Um, I worked actually for CMA full-time for a few years before going out on my own, so it's been a pretty natural progression to kind of fall back into that those shoes, so it's, it's fun. Awesome. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for being on the show, guys. Um, so real quick, for folks that don't know what Civic Music Association is, maybe, Peter, can you give us just a rundown of what the organization is and, and what you guys are striving to do there? So we uh, have a long 95-year tradition of bringing great music to Des Moines. Um, it, the organization was actually founded by three women uh, in 1925 who uh, were fans of classical music opera um, and uh, would travel to go see it in Chicago and other places in New York and said, well, Des Moines needs to have this experience. So uh, we're actually the second oldest arts performing arts organization in Des Moines. The oldest is the uh, the Playhouse, 1918. So they beat us mm -hmm. by seven years. Um, I like to think of the these three women as um, kind of, uh, if they were alive today, they'd be wearing Des Moines Hell Yes socks. This <laughs> <laughs> discreet socks, not not t-shirt. They know t-shirt. Maybe they wear the socks. Real, uh, you know, real advocates for the community, real uh, believers in the value of the music that they loved and um, and how it could shape and improve the lives of those people who live in Des Moines and, and help Des Moines become, a, a, you know, a real vibrant uh, community. So, um, that, you know, and they aimed really high in terms of the talent they would bring, uh, national and international touring artists. Um, the first major touring artist that what anybody would probably recognize on the season history is in 1932, uh, Sergei Rachmaninoff was on our season. Um, before there was a Des Moines Symphony, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra used to come under the auspices of Civic Music Association. Um, I mean, if you if you go to if you visit civicmusic.org and click on our season history and scroll through it, it's pretty impressive. Um, we brought the greats. Uh, Vladimir Horowitz, uh, Van Clyburn, Itzhak Perlman, you know, you name it. And in the 90s, um, we started adding uh, jazz to the program, and it's about 50-50 jazz. We occasionally break out and do some more crossover artists. Um, we don't have a venue. Uh, we present in other venues, uh, Sheslow Auditorium at Gray Campus, uh, Hoyt Sherman Place in west of downtown. Um, um, also, um, other places like uh, the Stapleton Performing Arts Center and at Valley. Um, so we move around uh, kind of depending on the, the ensemble and the environment that would be conducive to good acoustics and so forth. Um, we are a small organization. Uh, I'm the only full-time staff. Um, we have a half-time patron services coordinator and then I've got support for people like Cala on the marketing side. 
Um, I should mention that in the context of this conversation, especially we, uh, for the past 21 seasons have managed the Bellin Quartet. Um, this is a professional string quartet. Uh, there are actually five members on the quartet. That's because there are three, ro three rotating violinists because we do summer concerts and they're you know, going to festivals and things over the course of the summer or playing in the opera. Um, <clears throat> but the Bellin Quartet was founded in uh, 1999 with two th the summer of 2000 being their first summer concert series um, in memory of David Bellin, who is an attorney in town. Um, folks who are from central Iowa might know the Bell and McCormick law firm. Uh, David was an amateur violinist and a, a real passionate believer in the value of classical music. And after his death, his family started funding this uh, themselves. And so every, every year for the past 21 years, they've written a check to support these free concerts that uh, happen wow. except for this summer. And we'll talk a lot about that um, in uh, downtown Des Moines, but also free concerts in schools and other places throughout the school year. Um, and uh, you know we're we're happy that uh, in this uh, environment of COVID and the coronavirus that we've found an alternative that has been really exciting and successful for us, and we'll talk about that. Sure. Yeah, and I I'm going to add just like one tiny little thing to that. It's all great information about CMA, but I think this is exciting. So even when like Sergey Rachmaninoff was here or Marian Anderson, some of those bigger names, I think one of the coolest things about CMA is that they did it when they were kind of rising stars before they became the name that they are now. And I would say that we're still very much doing that. Mm -hmm. So when we bring artists to Des Moines, they may not be at their very height of their career yet, but it's kind of a chance to catch them before they become huge. Like Esperanza Spalding was here before she is, you know, before she played for the president. And it's, it's pretty cool to be a part of that as well. And we just think for our audience, like, yeah. trust us, good things are coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Season, an example of that is Yo-Yo Ma. Um, he came on, on our season, I think, in the early 80s. with, uh, And then Emmanuel Axe is a pianist who started in Yitzhak Perlman back in the 70s. Um, so uh, the other thing that should be mentioned is that since the beginning, when these artists come to Des Moines, we make sure that they are out in the community doing education programs um, for students and others. Uh, so they do master classes and or do special performances. So that education component is important for us. And we were able to continue that. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about how we did that this summer. Um, but uh, that is an important part of our mission as well. Awesome. That's really cool. I think that was a kind of a good segue, Peter, if you want to talk about like we said, the, the history of the Bell and Quartet and how that's changed this year. So what's been kind of, obviously you're doing outdoor concerts. Tell us a little bit about how that challenge kind of peaked its head uh, earlier this year. Well, you know, we start planning for the summer season, you know, in January, February, and uh, start doing the normal things to secure venues and uh, to, you know, just do, do all the prep work to get ready for the season. And uh, suddenly you know, middle of March hit and we were faced with the reality that you know, we were not going to be able to do this in the usual way. And our first thought was, um, is there a way to, um, you know, set up the audience that would allow for social distancing and, uh, and uh, is that the way to go? Um, since we do play outdoors, um, there was a lot of concern uh, from our funders, um, the Bellin family and others that, um, that probably wouldn't work um, given human behavior. And uh, so they kind of said, no, well, let's come up with a, th a third idea of how we're going to do this. And uh, happily, Kari Smith, who's on our board, suggested I contact Ryan. And uh, she knew that you guys had a studio and, you know, 
she thought maybe there'd be some interest in, in helping us out. So happily, you guys uh, saw the value in, you know, and we were excited about transitioning us from a live outdoor concert experience to uh, in-studio live stream uh, virtual experience. And uh, it has been a, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about this, but the, you know, the, the whole um, professional experience that we've enjoyed working with Applied Art and also just the, the quality of the sound and the quality of the video work. And it's, uh, it's been a real pleasure. It's been, it, it, for me, I've really never produced or directed a, a, a multi-camera thing with music. So it's been a lot of fun for us. Uh, it's been a lot of fun for the crew. Um, so we've enjoyed it very, very much. And it's something that I've looked forward to every Wednesday. So how long have we been doing that and how long will that go on every Wednesday for how much longer? We have one more concert, correct, Peter? That's right. And then we uh, did, this was the, the, ninth, uh, the ninth one. So we've done 10. Uh, so we'll do 10 in this whole series. Uh, there was a special concert uh, that they did a Friday. Uh, it was a, a morning concert. It was the Peter uh, and the Wolf one. Yeah. Which I was very disappointed because I was scheduled out of town for that one because Peter and the Wolf is one of my favorite pieces. I'll admit, I know it was geared towards children, but I was the most engaged out of all those concerts. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Maybe that says something about Ryan. <laughs> that, that is something, you know, when we're in the show and we have things to do, the, the beautiful music starts playing and all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh God, I got to do something. <laughs> you get lulled into this sort of uh, sense of, oh, this is great. Well, it's interesting because I heard George say the other day that he's really developed a taste for classical music and he had not otherwise been exposed to it, which I think is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'd like to stress is that, um, you know, the, the musicians, um, were, um, sl- not slow to come around, but they were trepidatious about this whole setup. And I, th- uh, they were concerned about a number of things, mo- but really it circles around making sure that they are presented in the most professional way that they can, that their art shines, that they're they're given an opportunity to do their best work and that um, they're presented well. And uh, it became pretty obvious to them very quickly uh, once we met the crew and started, you know, working together with with the folks at Applied Art to get prepared for this, that, you know, this was going to be done well. And it put them at ease. Um, it's a it's unnerving, I think, for artists to uh, perform in this setting um, without an audience. Um, and uh, you know, we did our we did everything we could to provide a you know, reassuring and comfortable environment for them, which helps them you know respond best. Um, but it, you know, we've done other, um, and we could talk about that too. This this on this live stream. Uh, program of the Bell and Quartet is one of three things we did this summer in mm-hmm. live stream. And um, it is certainly by far, uh, the, you know, the best looking and the best produced. And, uh, it, uh, you know, when you look out over the landscape of uh, artists getting online or presenters getting online with their programs, you know, I don't know if you're going to see anything better than what we presented for the Bell and Quartet this summer. And that, that I'm pretty proud of that. And I think people um, appreciate it and kept them coming back. 
That's awesome. And Cal, I had a question for you as well. I know we were talking about kind of who, who CMA is, but really like, who are your guys audience? Who are you guys trying to target and how has that been affected with you guys switching to a live stream kind of approach to this for the concerts? Sure. So generally speaking, our audience skews quite a bit older. I would say um, 55 plus easily the majority of our audience. When you go to actual concerts, you might skew a little bit younger than that, but it is um, it is an older audience, which is interesting taking a digital approach because obviously got to have some tech savviness to to get in here. And we did notice at the very beginning, I think there were some struggles with that, but I will credit where it's due. People learned pretty quickly. We had some questions at first, but I think as we went on, we got better about how we, you know, were able to communicate with people. We were able to send out direct links, which made things easier, but they were there every week and they logged in and, um, you know, we, with, with the Bell and Quartet, it, classical music does tend to especially skew on the, the older range. Um, with our, some of our other series, we did try to go a little bit younger, which we can talk about a little bit too. So, but yeah. Well, go ahead. Yeah. I want to hear yeah. about that. I want to hear what you did over the summer, you know, the summer series. Talk about that. Sure. So Peter mentioned we had three different live streams every week. So actually starting mid April, we launched our get music, get happy hour series, which was on every Friday night at 6 PM. Um, we just concluded that at the end of July. So it was a, it was a really fun experience. We had a variety of artists performing jazz, classical, chamber, just kind of all across the board. And I think kind of also to what Peter said, you know, it, it was hard. Like this isn't something that musicians are used to doing. So when you ask them, you call them up and you're like, hey, can you perform for an hour without an audience <laughs> in front of your computer? That's a, kind of a big ask. And a lot of people stepped right up to the plate and I would say we had a lot of success with that. And I think. Um, you know, artists are also starting to do it more and more as the times are calling for, of course. It's been a, a tough time for artists. They're, this is their livelihood. And um, also, you know, it's part of who they are. It's what they do every day, day in and day out. So they're at home practicing right now. It's not like they're sitting around doing nothing. And it's awesome when we can kind of provide that opportunity for them to bring their art to the stage again. So we had the Get Music at Happy Hour. And then on Tuesday morning, starting mid-June, I think, um, we started the CMA Studio, which is our education side of things. They did a summer session on um, Facebook Live and YouTube Live as well. So we had a local educator, Joyce Fire, who put together a really fantastic um, curriculum based around the Bell and Quartet's pieces, which was also kind of neat. It was an opportunity for people to tune in there. And, and our audience did actually... I went back kind of back through and our first one was a little bit older still. And as the weeks went on, it gradually got lower and lower. So we ended up with like women 25 to 34 being our main audience for that education, which I would assume, you know, we can't actually, we're not tracking those 10 year olds just yet. So, <laughs> um, but we would assume that their kids were there with them and, and tuning in and enjoying that as well. So it was when nice say, to see. When you say it's education, is it, is it learning the instruments or more learning the backstory of the, the, the composers and the musicians themselves that created the pieces? Sure. Um, they aren't actually learning to play any instruments. So they're learning about instruments, about composers, about pieces. It's more like a classroom setting, like what you would get in elementary education, I would say. And it was, but, but specific to the pieces that the Bell and Quartet was playing. And, you know, we talked a little bit about how classical music does skew older. 
Um, and just even what you just said, as, as you listen to it more, your tolerance and your enjoyment of it increases. So starting them young, I think is really great because if you know right off the bat that there's something enjoyable there, it's, you know, bodes well for the future and in, in the audience. So I, I should say that in terms of production of the three um, things that we did this summer, of course, the Bell and Quartet was in, in the confines of the applied art and benefiting from the production team that was there. Um, for the Get Music and Happy Hour, it was uh, every artist had to be had to set up their camera and had to set up their soundboard and had to be mic'd and you know, we had to plug into our platform. Um, and uh, and it was um, kind of a bit hit and miss in terms of uh, what they were kind of prepared to do and whether they were on top of it or not, but ultimately everybody came through. Um, and then uh, for the uh, summer session um, productions, it was, uh, I, I actually did it myself. I, I used a webcam and actually recorded like 15, 20 minute lessons for Joyce Beyer, who's the instructor. She's on camera talking to the kids. And then every week um, it would be live with her welcoming kids to the, that, that, that week's uh, lesson. Uh, and then we'd cue the video that I'd recorded previously. And then we'd cut, cut back to her at the end and she'd encourage them to do an activity that was online that we posted on our website and encourage kids to listen to the um, Bell and Quartet's concert. So it was kind of a combination, that one of live and pre-recorded content. Um, so, you know, so th three approaches, kind of homespun, <laughs> in the case of ours, uh, self-produced, I should say. And then artists, you know, the, the Get Music Get Happy Hour was really leaning heavily on the artists. And then in the case of Bell and Quartet, you know, the, the professional presentation. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that we, uh, as an organization, this spring we're on the, completing a strategic plan, a uh, new strategic plan that um, has not been tossed out the window because of this, but things have certainly changed in terms of how we'll implement some of the things we talked about in that plan. But there are several aspects of that plan that are really, we're taking off in a much faster way than we did because of what's happening here. And that is that we're, we want to diversify our audience attract a younger audience and uh, uh, appeal to families and children in a way that we haven't, we haven't really uh, uh, done that in a, in a real solid way. Um, and uh, you know, and also diversify our, our programming. Um, the Get Music and Happy Hour was, um, it was mostly jazz and chamber, but there were some artists who were kind of crossover artists into the pop and soul and electronic. Um, so it was a, it was an opportunity. It's, we, we've, we've turned lemons into lemonade, I think a little bit here. Um, and it's, um, it's been an exciting ride. Hey, Peter, you should talk a little bit about CMA plus, which right. will be kind of new. And I think that speaks to that. Yeah. Uh, when we were in planning mode in the spring, we decided we were going to introduce a new series separate from our main subscription series. And we were going to call it CMA plus. And the idea there is that we would uh, take advantage of uh, routings. Uh, you know, we're, we're in the middle of uh, between Omaha, Kansas City, Minneapolis, Chicago, St. Louis. And so a lot of, a lot of artists that uh, are booked in those cities pass through Des Moines. Mm -hmm. And we, as an organization, haven't been able to take advantage of that because we pre-schedule everything so far in advance. We curate a season a year to 18 months in advance. We've never jumped on to a routing opportunity. And so we, we hope when things go back to normal that we can do this. And that is uh, book things on the, on the fly 
and book things that, uh, for artists that are um, outside of the norm for us that would draw a younger audience. And we would present those in smaller venues like XBK, I don't know if that venue in, in the Drake neighborhood. XBK stands for X Brooklyn Kid. A woman named Toby Parks and her partner uh, founded this really great club and she's really wanting to expand uh, the programming they do there. And we're, we're hopefully gonna be partnering that with them in the future. Wonderful. And so how are you going to throw this to Cala? How are you going to market that? That's a really good question. (laughs) (laughs) So we have, you know, we didn't even announce CMA plus until um, (laughs) mid-March. So I'm not going to lie. Our our, uh, strategies have totally changed since then. We actually haven't talked about it a lot. Um, I guess kind of off the cuff, you know, we have our built-in audience with our email list, which is really great, but that's not necessarily the audience that we are hoping to attract with this new offering. Of course, we want those people there. We want our typical audience to be able to join us at those. And I think we're, we've, are going to offer some incentives to our season ticket holders to kind of get early access and extra um, special, I guess, experiences when we do have those CMA plus concerts. But in addition to that, we'd like to try to reach a younger audience. And I, you know, that'll be something that we talk about as we hopefully actually are able to do them. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about it yet. So I imagine we'll probably lean more into digital marketing. Um, you know, historically CMA has done a lot of print advertising in the past couple of years. We've started to kind of pull that back anyway. It hasn't had the same as I'm sure you guys are very aware um, it's harder to reach people through print advertising than it ever has been. So, you know, kind of looking at reallocating that budget. And as we do put these CMA plus performances together, um, exploring the digital landscape a little bit more. And of course the audience will also need to change for that. So. I think that makes a ton of sense. I worked in radio here for quite a while with five different stations and just exactly what Peter describes artists would travel through and they'd stop in at the station, particularly new artists. It, it kind of, swung more country than the, than the rock, classic rock artists, but they'd come in and perform in the studio and everything that we would do, we'd have a heads up that they were coming and we would do something online on the website where people could register to get invited to come and listen to this new, yeah. new artist. And so we'd bring them into the studio and we'd have maybe 10 people and then our staff to, to listen to, you know, before Jake Owen was Jake Owen, before Eric Church was Eric Church. These were people that were coming in and playing for this small group to kind of get evaluated on their way, you know, in a, in a very long bus trip. So it really can be exciting and falls right in line with what Peter described. You guys kind of expose people before their, their names are big and the ticket prices go sky high. So that's awesome. I should say one more thing about CMA Plus, I, I'm hopeful that we can roll it out in this coming year, maybe this spring. And I'm imagining a rollout that would be a com- kind of a hybrid of a uh, live present. It'll be a live concert, probably uh, small, you know, maybe still be socially distanced at that time. But that concert would be simultaneously live streamed. There'd be a two, two-tier ticket. There'd be kind of maybe a $20 ticket for the live concert and then a $10 ticket to attend it on, online as, a, you know, for those folks who... Uh, don't yet feel comfortable coming out. So I'm, ho- I'm hopeful that that model is something that gets traction and we can actually make it happen this year. Um, one thing about uh, attract, you know, the, the idea of what kind of audience we want to reach and what we're able to reach through uh, the mechanism of the Bell and Quartet's summer online concerts or the th- other two things we've been doing. Um, 
I don't know if Cal, do you want to talk about kind of the, the, the nuances of uh, engagement that we've seen in, in terms of the audience on social media through this? Because, um, you know, we, we have seen a younger audience, but it's just interesting to see where, what they're doing when they engage with us. Yeah. So I guess, um, on the, so we've been presenting on, in, on two platforms. We've been pre presenting on Facebook live and then on YouTube live. We started the summer. Well, I guess actually it was definitely spring. It was April. We started in April on just Facebook live, which, um, was a little bit more difficult to navigate. I think for people that weren't really familiar with Facebook. So we out of kind of, you know, we wanted our audience to be able to find us. We went ahead and went on both platforms. And I think kind of one of the things that we really liked about Facebook Live was the ability for organic traction. Because this was something that was not necessarily planned for, as, as no surprise, nobody was complaining for the coronavirus. <laughs> um, you know, it was, we, we were, we didn't really have a budget to promote this. And we didn't, I mean, it wasn't at all in our scope of thinking in January and February that we would be doing these three live stream events every week. So we were really looking forward to that kind of organic ability to, to draw in a newer audience or just a bigger audience. Um, but, and so on Facebook, that works really well on YouTube. You don't have that same type of organic reach, but again, it was just easier for some of our, especially older audience members who maybe weren't on Facebook or were unable to, to navigate to the page and find that live video. And it's gotten easier. And I think Facebook has also made some adjustments because they've seen more of this as the, as time has gone on. But um, it's, it's been a good experience and we've definitely learned a lot. I think artists have learned a lot. And I think too, you know, from the musician side of things, I know Peter's talking a little bit about the audience, but I think honestly the, the musician made a huge difference too. So it, when musicians were engaging with that online audience, the whole show was just better, you know? Um, and I think it in turn created more engagement from the audience. So it was, that's like one of the things you lose out on when you don't have an actual live performance and a live audience. It's, it's a lot of balance between the artist and the audience. And I think we take that for granted when we're in a concert hall, but um, it's, it's been really cool to see how, how different artists have taken to the different platforms and really made it their own and engaged with the audience and, and vice versa. So. Interesting you say that because uh, I attended a concert with Leo Kotke years ago and he was notorious for bringing his chair out, sitting on the edge of the stage and would just start playing. And he kind of made that his stick, as it were. And after about 20 minutes, he'd stop playing, look at the audience and say, I've kind of discovered that people, if I don't interact with you guys, you get a little ill at ease with that. So hi, and then went right back to playing. And, you know, so once they recognize that and the fact that they recognize that and then taking that into a virtual experience, it's very difficult to carry on a conversation with someone when you're really not seeing them, you're not feeling them, you're not yeah. in the environment with them. Yeah, they well, don't that, even have, they don't even have the cardboard cutouts like Major League Baseball, <laughs> right? So, I mean, you got nothing. Right. Well, and then like the other part of it that's really hard is from the musician standpoint when you're performing, um, you know, as we all know, people's attention span online is different than it is in person. So you can't talk for too long or you lose people, you know, you, and you can't play what, you know, sometimes we in a concert experience, you pull things back for a little while and 
take, take play slower pieces or whatever it may be. And in an online only concert, that's also hard because um, the audience wants to be engaged the whole time. They may only tune in for five minutes. And if you're not catching them in that five minutes, it makes it really hard. So you kind of lose like that, I don't know, the ebb and flow of what you would get in a live concert. Yeah, absolutely. Looks like we have a question. Yeah, it's uh, what would you say are some of the greatest advantages with uh, digital slash virtual events? Reach, um, you yeah. know, and one thing that I should say about our, you know, looking at the, the analytics of our, especially our Facebook uh, activity, um, you know, if in an, if our normal demographic is, um, you know, 5% under 40 or 10% under 40, um, the range with our, on, on, you know, our, our live streams has been, you know, double, double that. Uh, um, and especially, but, but what's interesting is that, it, that engage, that doubling of engagement, uh, ebbs and flows, um, if you're looking at just the people who show up and like the page and become kind of aware of us and connect with us by liking or following, that's, that's seeing a lot of activity. You see less activity, less engagement from the younger audience for actually viewing the content or sticking with it. You know, the older or older audience might see the whole concert, but the younger audience, I like it. I'm going to watch it for a few minutes and I'm going to go on. And so that's, that's, you know, what Callie just said about what the viewers are like, it, it, you know, the, the older audience will hang, give us more of their time and engage more actively with the content. The younger audience will give us the like and spend a lot less time with the content. Just an interesting uh, difference yes. in behavior. Well, it's, it's, kind of, yeah. it's kind of interesting. You, you mentioned, you know, you're wanting to try to appeal to younger audiences so you can kind of future-proof the organization, like, you know, educate younger people like you said if you can get them under 10 or around that age where you can they can learn about the music and then kind of come up with it and have a taste for it what's been kind of your guys approach with that because it sounds like a majority of your existing audience is you know 55 plus in age but you're also trying to recruit so to speak or attract that younger audience what's been kind of that that strategy with that because it sounds like it could be kind of overwhelming at times with all the different um, approaches to it it's one of the biggest challenges uh, we face, the Des Moines Symphony faces, um, um, Valley Des Moines to some extent, um, you know, but you just have to keep at it. Um, you have to connect with the kids by, by being in the schools, by being, you know, by connecting with their teachers, by offering ways for the, ways into the music that are engaging and fun and Peter, do you work with music teachers in the school system? Yeah, we have a, we have an education committee that has several music teachers. And then of course uh, we go into the schools. So when I do that, um, you know, I'm engaged, I'm interacting with the teachers and coming into their environment, of course. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, we, we bring to kids, uh, K through 12 and, and college too, some pretty uh, special opportunities that probably create memories that um, you know, may not uh, affect them immediately. They don't necessarily go want to run out and become a, a concert pianist or, or something like that, but um, it shapes their uh, young minds in a good way. And it, it might, it may trigger something down the road. Um, they may choose to pursue a kind of um, a minor in music performance or something like that in college. Cause they kind of 
in part because of the experience they had with us and the great teachers they had in school. They, they love it, you know, it's part of their world. Or if they don't kind of pursue it to that extent, they, they, uh, they may, maybe they go to college and get a career going and then have families. And then at some point they say, there's something, I want to expand my horizons and there's something in their mind that, that connects with their youthful experience in music. And that's when they come back to us. Um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of people, and I don't know if anybody on in, in our little group here can say this, but I've heard from so many people that, you know, their first experience with an orchestra was when they were in middle school or in grade school, or their first experience hearing chamber music was at a concert at their school. And I think that says a lot about kind of where it does, you know, it's amazing how it like ingrains in your brain and it festers until you come back. <laughs> it's, it's so funny because grows, uh, grows, uh, not yes. festers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a better word. <laughs> a former coworker of ours, somebody that we all um, love, that worked with Applied Art for a long time, Courtney's uh, her twin boys. One of her boys, and how old are they, Mark? Are they five, six? I mean, I, I don't even. They're little dudes. Yeah, he, I would say that's they're six-ish. He took up the violin. And was passionate about it and was having lessons and they did performances. And it was like, nobody else in the family plays violin. And how did this become something he was interested in? And I wish I knew more of the backstory, but I don't. But I, I've seen pictures of him on social media at that young age, really passionate about playing. Which, like Peter said, he may grow past that and then come back to it. Or that may be something that he sticks with for a long time. But I thought that was a really young age and kind of a random instrument for him to, to take such a liking to. You know, Ryan asked, what, what's our strategy? Our strategy is to be in front of kids as much as we can. Um, and, you know, we just hope, you know, it, we, there's no way of tracking that over a lifetime, right? How do you track yes. that? But uh, you just know that that ha you see it anecdotally enough. And you, you, if you were to pull any of our, current audience, a lot of them had that experience growing up and they um, have developed a lifelong love of music and are, are open-minded uh, and kind of uh, more uh, kind of adventurous mm -hmm. uh, uh, for the kind of music they might like to take, to experience. And that that's part of what we accomplish. I think I'm, you know, it's going to be part of that kind of expanding horizons of kids. Absolutely. And there was a follow-up question to the advantages of a digital virtual event. Uh, what are some of the challenges and advice you would give to someone to try to overcome those? Mark, don't you know what all the challenges are? <laughs> <laughs> behind the scenes. Cross the wire. <laughs> I, think, I think one of the biggest challenges is that like, it's not totally within your control. Like, it's really great to be able to say, oh yeah, we're going to do this. It's going to start at six o'clock sharp. Everything's going to be going perfectly, but that's just not always the reality. And I think, um, you know, not only not having that control, that's obviously a challenge, but also being able to communicate that with your audience. Because I think if they're not in your shoes, they don't necessarily realize that there are a lot of moving pieces at play. And it's, um, you know, with the Bell and Quartet, at least everybody's in one room. When we were doing like these Get Music at Happy Hours, we were across the country from some of our artists. They were in different time zones. They were playing outside and had a Wi-Fi connection issue or, you know, they're, they're, you know, they don't have a sound guy. So they're like trying to adjust their levels as they're playing. And there are just a lot of like little new you take for granted in a concert hall 
that when we moved online, those were changes and, and big ones. And I think um, it was hard for both artists and for audience members to kind of realize like everything that was going on. And so to me, I think that was one of the biggest ones. I'm sure Peter has others that are. <laughs> I found that people, at least at the beginning, were pretty forgiving of mm -hmm. video uh, slip-ups, but they were less forgiving of audio problems. You know, if you could get the audio feed right, people, you know, they're listening to it at home, they could just kind of, you know, not pay attention to the video feed, as long as there's good audio. I mean, because it's the music, what matters, right? Exactly. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's... Um, you can have everything set up right, and then, as Mark was mentioning this week, you know, you, you once you push go, you're at the mercy of the the gods of the internet, <laughs> whether it's going to go right. Yeah, you know, all all we have control of is okay. The signal's going out now. Everyone has to connect to the pick your Facebook, YouTube, live, whatever. Your connection is affected. That your neighbor's connections could affect your connection. I mean, there is so many challenges that exist in that. Well, I mean, yeah. Like I even sometimes was on multiple devices and it's amazing how they're not even the same, you know, nope. like one, I have great video and the other one I can hear. And like, it's kind of, it's weird how even they're, you know, 12 inches apart and could still have issues. But they're they're physically twelve inches apart, but their connections right. are much different. Um, right, it's fascinating. You know, and and kind of back to what you said, Peter, um, which is why it's interesting. From and if I get too far in the weeds, someone kick me. Um, but on all of the platforms, it doesn't matter. You Facebook Live, Zoom, Go to Meeting, YouTube, Vimeo, any of the platforms, audio always has a priority over video because it's more important to hear than to always see. Um, and so, and I think that's, you know, that's an interesting <laughs> perspective because that does come from the, if I stop hearing you, I mean, if I freeze, but my audio is still going, people are like, yeah, okay. But if I completely cut out, my, they're going to go away. So, and your audio bandwidth is, is, is less, uh, how do I want to put that? There's, there's less bandwidth needed for the audio than there is to have the audio in the video. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I know we're coming up on time here. I had one last question for you, Peter, before we close. Um, it sounds like this year has been a lot of pivoting for your organization. Um, for the nonprofit folks out there that are either running with a small team or limited budget or both, um, they're trying to overcome some of these things. What would be your biggest advice for someone else running a nonprofit right now and, and trying to get out there and get engaged with their audience? Well, if you're lucky enough to find a partner like Applied Art, you're in a good place. Um, Thank you for that shameless plug. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, we, you know, it, we, this would not have happened without uh, without Applied Art and without... Um, and the team that knows what it's doing. Um, but if you're not able to make that kind of connection, you don't have a, you know, a company like Applied Art in your community where you can do this. Um, you know, we, we self-produced, as I mentioned before, our summer session program. And that, uh, you know, I taught myself pretty quickly how to use StreamYard, how to 
hook up a webcam and how to, you know, I bought the lav mic and I, you know, connected, you know, put it on the teacher's collar and, you know, we, we managed to, you know, um, pull that together on our own. And it was a very modest investment of, you know, in terms of dollars. Um, it was nowhere near, you know, what I would you know, love to see in terms of production quality, but it, you know, it, it got the content across and Joyce was great. You know, she's, as long as the content is there, you know, as long as you have good, good content, I think um, people, as I said before, give you know, are patient with the video uh, to some extent. Yeah. And, you know, we have learned through our years of experience that content's king. So if, if, if the content is great, people will put up with a lot of the other potential failures, but if your content is good and someone else's content is good, but their quality is better, they're going there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. And I think we're really seeing that now. Well, and it's becoming a really competitive space too. Like a lot of people are, are out there doing things online now. So I think um, if you want to stand out or get that, you know, get the viewer, you have to. It's a fight for attention. Absolutely. Yep. Awesome. Well, I think we'll wrap up there. That was some great tidbits, guys. Thanks so much for coming on the webinar and the podcast. Um, To all of our live attendees, if you have any more questions, feel free to shoot them to us at ideas at appliedart.com. If you are watching on the webinar, this is also going to be turned into a podcast. So if you're wanting to tune in and listen rather than watch, um, you can see all the episodes that we have listed on our podcast at artofmarketingpodcast.com. So Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Peter, Kala, appreciate you guys. Have a great week, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Art of Marketing podcast from Applied Art and Technology. If you liked the episode, make sure to give us a five-star rating and leave a review so we can help more listeners connect with their customers. See the show notes for access to our free 88-page video idea book, filled with ideas for your next production. And to learn more about our company, visit our site at appliedart.com.